Good morning. This is Robert Pate, and you are tuned in to The Image Show on 98.3 The Vibe. Today is Sunday, April 14th, and my, oh my, do we have a show full of knowledge today. In the house with us is Beth Skinner, and Beth is the Director of Risk Reduction for the Iowa Department of Corrections. Beth, it is a pleasure to have you on the show this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this opportunity. Great. And Beth, I tell you, you are such a very knowledgeable person and uh, you have, it seems to be all your ducks in a row with the DOC, the statistics. And we want to talk a little bit about prison this morning and some statistics. Now with you, first of all, being the director of risk reduction, can you tell us a little bit about what you do, how long you've been doing it and how you do it? Sure. I've been with the Iowa Department of Corrections for about four years, and I provide oversight for the research division, and I also provide oversight to our training and continuous quality improvement uh, division as well. And basically before that, I was the statewide coordinator for the Second Chance uh, Statewide Receive Reduction Grant. And prior to that, I was out in the national scene. And then prior to that, I had spent 10 years in community-based corrections. So I've been doing this for about 20 years, even though I look like I'm only 21. But really what I do is I'm the number cruncher. Um, we're pulling the numbers. We have a robust data system for, uh, called ICON, the Iowa Corrections Offender Network. And I crunch the numbers. I help interpret them them for internal for for internally internally for staff and for our stakeholders uh, I do that on a day-to-day basis I do a lot of presentations which you've been to one of my presentations uh, talking about you know the statement of the problem how I Department of Corrections is addressing some of those problems and so I kind of have a, a, a potpourri of things uh, that I do but mainly I'm kind of the number cruncher and the the interpreter of that data that's great. And Beth, I got the chance to hear your presentation at the uh, Iowa Task Force meeting uh, through the United Way. And I must be honest, I was very impressed. And I'm glad it's really a, a blessing to have you on the show here because there's so many people that have a lot of questions about the DLC, about how a lot of different things are operated, uh, how things are calculated. So you've been working uh, with the DLC for over 20 years, correct? Well, I've been working with for the DOC about, DOC about 15 years, and I've been doing five years on the national scene with criminal justice issues. Okay. So can you tell us, I, I want to, first of all, talk about the racial disparity, disparity mm-hmm. in, uh, as it relates to the uh, Iowa DOC. I know that uh, we all know uh, Iowa is predominantly Caucasian state. And so with that, you have a lot of different views on, uh, you know, this racial disparity. So can you tell us a little bit about the statistics on that as it relates to the Iowa DOC? Yes, absolutely. Well, we know in the general population of Iowa, the African-American population runs about, in terms for the U.S. Census, about 4%. We know those that are incarcerated in our nine institution runs about 24%. So there's a 20% difference between the general population and then who we have incarcerated. Um, to us, that's, a, that's a, a disparity and a concern. The thing that I think is really important to note is that the criminal justice system is very large. It starts with uh, the policies that are developed, law enforcement, courts, corrections, reentry, community supervision. To address really racial disparities, it has to be a system-wide change at all the different decision points. For us in corrections, I will tell you, we're doing uh, different things now. Uh, We're going to start training our staff in implicit bias. Uh, We also have a statewide policy that annually we report on certain metrics like work assignments, who gets into core programming, discipline based on race. We report that out. Uh, If we identify disparities in any of those metrics, we will then take a deeper dive to see what's happening. 
Uh, we also developed a statewide dashboard that all staff and administrators have access to on specific metrics such as housing stability, unemployment, core programming, risk assessment, and it has race as one of the tabs. So you can compare across race, who's in programming, and things like that. So we're keeping our eye on that. And when we do see something that jumps out at us, we're, we're definitely going to uh, take a different, different, uh, a very deep, a deeper dive, as well as if there is something going on that we're going to have an action plan in place as well. Great. And so, Beth, uh, now, what if people have questions, they want to know, how do I find these statistics or uh, where can I go to get this information? Uh, where do they go? So we have on our website, Iowa Department of Corrections, we have a data tab that has uh, real live data like today's, like what our population count looks like, things like that. And we have quick facts that comes out quarterly, which means has all types of information about how long people's sentences are, race, age, sex, types of crimes people are incarcerated for. So you can actually get that on our website. Oh, great. And for people out there who just want to learn about uh, the Iowa DOC and the disparity in recidivism, Mm-hmm. as it relates to recidivism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So if they want to learn about uh, like just recidivism in general or like how the, how disparities are, are caused? or Well, I would say more of the ones that are coming back who are minorities uh, versus uh, black, white, Caucasian, uh, you know, the breakdown in the minority mm-hmm. uh, recidivism. Yes, uh, I actually have that sitting right in front of me. So uh, what we have is if we're, you know, looking at like Asian Pacific Islanders, we know that about for now when we define recidivism, it's really important to define what that is. So people are very clear what that is. So for us, it's those that are leaving prison that return within three years to prison for either a new a new crime or a technical violation. So when I say technical violation, I mean it's a violation of their supervision conditions, not necessarily a new crime. So Thank you for clearing that up. Yes, yes. Some people, and that's what's interesting is it makes it very difficult for us to compare against other states to see how we're doing because people measure recidivism differently. They they measure by new arrest. They do out one or two years out. We do a three-year out. So for 18, which is FY18, this is our, our year we're focused on for recidivism, we go back for those released in 15. Okay. okay. So we'll have new recidivism numbers come July after July 1st, and that will be our 2019. That'll be our, that'll be our 16 cohort we filed three years. So that's really important to find so people understand what that means. So in terms of race uh, composition, in terms of who returns, the lowest group is Asian, Asian, uh, Asian Pacific Islanders at 21.7%, uh, whites at 39.3%, uh, African Americans at 36.6%, and American Indians and Alaska Natives at 40.8%. So pro- the thing is, it can be deceiving in a sense because it looks like uh, the um, American Indians and Alaska Natives recidivate at a higher rate. They just have smaller numbers. So if, if there's only 50 in our system and, you know, 20 of them come back, it looks a lot higher. So it kind of it can make those numbers look a lot larger. But so I ran some s- statistical tests on is there a significant difference between race? So I did some statistical analysis. And what I found out is that there's a, there's statistically a difference between uh, blacks and Hispanics in terms of how recidivism. Okay? okay. And I also found out there's a statistical relationship between whites and Hispanics, but none between whites and blacks. 
Mm, wow. Mm-hmm. So that interesting. Was, so that was interesting. And I found out, too, just as a side note, that men and women don't recidivate differently. So the, there's, the only difference is between Hispanics and blacks, blacks and Hispanics and whites. And wow. so that's just something we'll have to keep our eye on and see if that changes over the years. So that's just doing more a sophisticated analysis just than just looking at per, straight percentages, which could look inflated if you have a small population that has a few people that recidivates. Now, how do you determine the consistency of uh, these numbers? Well, we, we basically, we ha- well, we have our data system we use, which is ICON, but we also use the Justice Data Warehouse and partner with Criminal Ju- Juvenile and Justice Planning, which has the court-level data. So we match our data with their data, and that's how we get our, our, our uh, recidivism information. So we try, you know, we do quality checks and things like that. Um, to see, and usually how we know if someone's come back in our system, we, we follow them for three years and they come back as a new admin. And so, but we do a lot of quality improvement and insurance around our data to make sure it's accurate, if that, that answers your question. Sure, sure, yeah, it does. Okay. And Beth, you seem very, very passionate about your yes. job. And it shows, it reflects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're one of the very few mm-hmm. that I've come across that actually have all your ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I say that, I mean, you came in so prepared uh, this morning. Uh, we had to go back and forth before we were able to actually come on the show, making sure that I had all my ducks in a row. And uh, and, and I appreciate that, too, uh, by the way, you know, because it's great preparation. But I just want to know, for the listeners out there, they're probably wondering, okay, uh, we have someone on here on the radio show we're listening to now from the DOC. Why is it that we continue to see all the mass incarceration over nonviolent crimes in the state of Iowa? Yeah, that's that's challenging. And I guess it's really important to have the history first, which is something in mass incarceration. We talk about mass incarceration. It basically means that the United States incarcerates more people than anyone else in the world. And that this has been going on since the 1970s. And so a lot of that uh, policy, you know, uh, tough on, you know, you know, the war on drugs, tough on crime, three strikes, mandatory minimums, uh, some of that really caused this huge ballooning or mushrooming in terms of our prison population. And a lot of that has some states have you know, repealed some of that back and changed some of the laws. Um, I think Iowa... Uh, I can tell. I can say, you know, the last couple of sessions have been looking at this uh, to see at these different policies and how they may uh, impact, um, you know, incarceration uh, with mandatory minimums. Uh, looking at it has minority impact. So I think, you know, we have some work to do in Iowa, but I also think that there's a lot of um, bipartisan support to look at those laws and see what types of impacts they're having. And that's, sure. Yeah. Great. And I've got a question here for you that I want to get into a little bit more in detail. We got to go to a quick commercial. But when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the mental illness and how that affects our prison systems, our societies and uh, whatnot. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after these messages. And we're back on the image show. For those of you who have just tuned in, we are in a exclusive interview with Beth Skinner, who is the director of risk reduction for the Iowa DOC. Beth, so we kind of left off moving into racial disparity, or or excuse me, we left off talking about racial disparity, and now we are moving into mental illness. Let's talk about mental illness. This is huge in our prison systems in Iowa. 
Absolutely. Um, thank you for bringing this up. This is something I'm also very, very passionate about. Uh, what we know from the data is that 63% of the people in our prisons, the nine prisons, have some type of mental health issue, which is either other or serious. Uh, that's a, a big chunk of our population. We know for the women's prison, which is um, the Iowa Correctional, Iowa Institution for Women in Mitchellville, is that 80% have some type of mental health issue as well. Wow, that is a high number. That is a high number. And another thing, too, which is also, uh, I think, a striking number as well, is that recidivism for the general population that does not have a mental health issue is 33.5%. For those that have a mental health issue that relieve our prisons, it is up to 66.5%. My goodness. So, and I can tell you from this, the national research and things like that, people with, with mental health issues in reentry have a lot of challenges. Um, you know, they have um, issues, you know, getting attached or getting connected to the right services, um, you know, the right wraparound services for mental health or substance abuse. Uh, they, they usually stay, they end up staying longer in prison uh, compared to someone that doesn't. Uh, so there's many challenges for those individuals that have mental health issues that come out. And a lot of it is those ser- getting those services and getting them stabilized back in the community. And what is your experience with the mental illness as it plays a part in the, the movement into new laws, uh, prison reform, mm-hmm. things like that? I think really, in, in my humble opinion, you know, those that have you know, mental health issues, um, diversion programs, you know, instead of incarcerating them, um, you know, taking them to the ER versus jail, uh, depending on the situation, as long as it's not a public safety risk, uh, putting them into maybe community supervision or some kind of di- diversion program instead of incarcerating them. Um, I think what happens a lot of times, people with mental uh, health issues are self-medicating, uh, their family doesn't know what to do with them, uh, or they come to attention of law enforcement and they get kind of pulled in our system. And the research shows once they get pulled in our, sin- our system, they get deeply entrenched. And that just is not Iowa. That's, that's all over. So uh, any types of, I think, diversion, I think, would be helpful. Uh, again, connecting them uh, to services, make sure that capacity in those communities are available for you know, those mental health services. Uh, I, I just think that's, to me, that's kind of where it's at. Now, Beth, you kind of look into today's world and you see so many diagnoses for almost anything, it seems like. I mean, a person can literally uh, go to the doctor and say, you know, I've got this problem, and it turns into some kind of diagnosis that you've never even heard of. Now, do these uh, type of diagnoses play into the mental illness? The, the information I know, and when we when I look, and this is probably more of a Dr. Greenfield question, who's our medical administrator, uh, who's a brilliant and an excellent administrator, uh, is you know the things that we see on a common basis are like major depression, uh, schizophrenia, psychosis, um, bipolar, things like that. We also have, we're also learning as we're moving forward, which we've done at ICIW, our women's prison, is looking at trauma. Uh, trauma can play a role in this as well. So, you know, we use, you know, Dr. Greenfeld's a great staff of psychiatrists and psychologists uh, to help identify those individuals so we can make sure they get the treatment that they need. Uh, that's really uh, a really important thing is to make sure these individuals get the services and treatment they need when they're incarcerated and when they get out as well. Okay. And for those of you who have just tuned in, we are with Beth Skinner on The Image Show, and Beth is the Director of Risk Reduction for the Iowa DOC. And uh, Beth has been on here doing a great job, and so I've got another question for you, for you Beth. Okay. Uh, DOC population in each individual institution, 
So first, let's talk about the population. Let's talk about how many prisons do we have in the state of Iowa and the populations and the direction that that's going uh, as it. Now, first of all, I'll let you answer that. And then I also want to get into the overcrowdedness in these institutions, Mm -hmm. because I know uh, from experience that probably almost every institution in the state of Iowa is overcrowded, correct? Yes, we are basically right now, our count today was 8,602. Uh, that puts us about 24% over our capacity. So that's something we've been working on uh, very closely with our uh, prison counselors, our treatment directors, as well as the Board of Parole, uh, trying to find people that are, that are eligible and ready to go and be released back into their community uh, that are going to be safe in our communities. Uh, that definitely is an issue, and it's something we watch on a daily basis. Um, and something that, you know, when you're over capacity, uh, the things you have to think about is, you know, your operations and staffing and having enough program to uh, treat the people uh, that come into your facilities and things like that. So we've done a really good do- job of uh, managing our resources well and being able to handle this overcrowding. But we know it's an issue. We know we have to, um, you know, either look on the front end, people that are coming in other ways for those that, you know, are having technical violations to keep them in out back in their community versus if they're not a public safety risk, and how do we get those people that are ready to come out out in a timely manner. And how many prisons do we have? Nine. We have nine prisons. Mm -hmm. Can you give us the uh, statistical number of each prison and the population? Sure. So when you ask the statistical numbers, like the count? Yes. Okay. So at our Anamosa Anamosa prison, we have currently, we have uh, 980 individuals incarcerated there, and that's a men's prison. Clarinda, which is on the uh, southwest corner of the state, has 973. We have Fort Dodge, which is one of our larger prisons at 1,364. We have Mitchellville, which is our women's prison. We have about 630 women there. Uh, We have uh, in Fort Madison, which is ISP, which is our max, we have 742 people there. Mount Pleasant, which is on the eastern side of the state, 969. Uh, Newton, we have in our medium, 956. And in our minimum, we have in 375. And then you have Rockwell City, we have 491. So approximately how many men do we have locked up in the state of Iowa versus women? We have... And I know you probably don't have... Do you have that calculated up? Yes. I have for men, we have 7,000... And now for the prisons, we have 7,825. For women, we have 736. Now, for community-based corrections, which is probation, parole, and work release, we have 22,000 men, 22,826, and 7,997 women. Wow. I wonder why is that number so high with men? I mean, I know that men is going to be higher, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't think it would be that much higher. And believe it or not, women are on the uptick in terms of trends for incarceration. And so a lot of people don't know that, but they're an an increasing part of not just Iowa population, but nationally we're seeing that. My goodness. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I want to move now to uh, inmate assessment custody rating. Mm -hmm. What determines an inmate's security custody? Now, I know from, again, personal experience that you get a lot of guys in prison and they say, man, I got five points or or my custody rate is high. How am I a, a, a medium high? Why is he a low? I don't know. The guy walks around. Oh, I don't know how I became a low all of a mm-hmm. sudden, or I don't know how I'm a medium. And so, but we know that that determines uh, their out date or their. 
parole uh, decision. And so uh, how is all this determined? More than anything, really, I think with classification and custody, it helps um, decide where the best place is to place them based on various factors. What institutions, what I mean by that? I mean, there's other factors considered, too, <clears throat> types of um, you know, the types of education they need, the type of mental health service they need, the type of core programs they need. But custody classification is, is kind of helps us sort people, if you will. Uh, so the things we look at is basically uh, the current conviction, prior record, the length of sentence, any kind of uh, prior disciplinary reports, age, escape, escape history, and security threat group. So it's an actuarial tool that gives people scores. Um, we've had it some years ago, um, the criminal juvenile justice planning, CJJP, validate that instrument. So it's a validated instrument to help guide us in terms of where we place people across the system. Okay. Could you elaborate on that just a little bit more for people who may not quite understand uh, how they get a custody score to be high or low? Right. So, for example, like when you have any kind of actuarial risk instrument, so certain factors we know by research um, can drive more offending behavior. Um, like we know on risk assessments, there's certain factors um, that are domains in a risk assessment that after you add up in the aggregate makes them at a higher risk. So the more risk factors you have, right, on these factors we know through research that demonstrate someone's either going to be a misconduct, have issues with misconduct, or recidivate, the more and more you check off each of those boxes, the higher your risk score becomes. So if you have um, you know, escape history, uh, you're in a, a gang, uh, you're younger, you have a lot of different reports, those add up in the aggregate. So that pushes someone up to a higher risk versus someone that would not be in any of those. So it discounts that up into a higher, puts people in risk bins, if you will. And do you feel that that is successful, uh, the way that uh, the DOC actually rates that? I mean, I know that it's going to be hard for, for people to control that if they've been out on parole and they go back in. Correct. Correct. One of the things is I'm a big fan of actuarial risk assessments. Uh, We use one, you know, in both prison and in in our community-based corrections, and we validate it. So basically we say we give them a score, right? They score them on all the items. They fall into a certain risk bin. And what we do is we, we come back and validate our instrument and say, hey, do those people that fell into those risk bins, do they recidivate? like a low person should, a medium person and a high person should, and it does. So that way we know that our instrument is giving us the right information. And we, so if it's putting someone in a high risk and they recidivate at a high risk or they become, have a misconduct issue, um, then we know we, we're, the instrument's doing its job. Okay, so Beth, say a person comes into prison with a medium risk. They've been in prison uh, throughout their duration. They've spent several years and they've done everything uh, to please their counselor and they get released out on parole. Mm -hmm. And then they come back in on a technical violation that has nothing to do with violence or, you know, it's a technical violation. And now they're in and they have that same, do, do they have that same risk score that they had when they when they went in or, or when they came out that they do when they went back in on the violation. Are you talking about custody classification? You're talking about like a, a just a, a risk assessment for risk to reoffending. Risk to reoffending. You know and both both. Well, interesting because we have the the Iowa Violence Victimization, Victimization Instrument is a pretty static instrument. A lot of time would have to go by for your risk score to change because it's okay. all prior. 
stuff. Same with custody classification. They're, they're, these are mostly statics, you know, except age or if you dropped out of security threat group, stuff like that. So you could go down uh, potentially. But the more the static-driven instruments, it's going to take some time for your risk to be reduced. But there are some opportunities here with our classification instrument to lower your risk, um, which, like I said, mentioned the security threat group, disciplinary reports, age, things like that. And do the institutional counselors uh, play a role in that? Because oftentimes a lot of inmates are upset with the counselors for their risk assessments when in reality their counselors had nothing to do with it. I've I've heard a lot of that and, you know, oftentimes I don't know, I never really knew what was the truth or not. My understanding, and um, I can't tell you if I'm 100% sure, but I believe that that happens, the classification, classification, I believe, happens when they come through the Iowa Medical Classification Center. Um, and that's where all those initial assessments happen. Um, and so that's where I believe those um, classifications happen. Um, but don't 100% quote me on that. I wish I could be sure. a little more clear on that. Oh, sure, I understand. But th- these are the questions uh, mm-hmm. that are some of the most commonly asked and wondered about sure. in prison. And I think that a lot of people uh, get that misconstrued, and it alters their behavior while they're in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important, maybe an important note, maybe I hope this is the right place to say this, but on the spot, is that we truly believe people can change. Um, and yeah, there are actual instruments that we use, but we also use professional discretion. Um, we know that people build protective factors, which is pro-social bonds, employment, housing, um, have a different view towards authority. Um, and we know people can change. So, um, you're not lab- that label doesn't, doesn't stick with you. Um, it, we, we really do believe people can change and we do every effort we can to help reduce the risk and see them for the human beings in that People do make mistakes and sure. that we, we're there to help them, really. We're not there to punish them. We're there to help them. So for the people that are currently in prison mm-hmm. and they're walking around and they're saying, you know, I want to I get out on parole mm-hmm. this year, but my risk is so high that I think I'm just going to get another laydown letter. Okay. What are ways that people can actually reduce that risk? I think what you, one thing you have to keep in mind, it's not one factor that drives why someone's paroled. Um, you, you know, you have a uh, board of parole, you have a counselor that makes recommendations. It's not just the risks that drive it. It's one piece of a puzzle. So you're looking at uh, how they behave while they're incarcerated. You looked at the programs that they've completed. Um, you've looked at uh, how accountable they are for and what they've learned and how they've changed. So it's the risk scores is one piece of it. But the board of parole, and I can't really speak for them, but I know it's a more a holistic view of how they've done while they're incarcerated. Again, have they made changes? Have they taken program? Have they completed success- successfully? Um, you know, how are they they're behaving? So, if, if I was someone that was uh, that was walking the yard, I would be trying to better myself in every way that I could, um, and staying in touch with my family and and getting a job uh, while I'm incarcerated. Um, and building your, you know, your pro-social supports the best you can and working with your counselor to case plan and set goals. So um, I, I just think that's it's, it's a multitude of factors that really go into that uh, final decision. And Beth, uh, can you tell us uh, throughout your department, what are some changes that are being made to reduce uh, the recidivism and uh, just the overall uh, movement in this uproar of incarceration? 
Right. That's an excellent question. Uh, we're doing right now, we have, especially in the, we, we've been doing it for years in pockets of good evidence-based practice, but we're really kind of stringing things together in, in a more integrated way. Uh, we're doing core correctional practices, which is an evidence-based practice, which is something you don't have to do in the classroom anymore. You can do it one-on-one, you know, sitting across from each other, doing, uh, you know, uh, positive reinforcement, effective disapproval. Um, building interpersonal relationships, problem-solving, role-playing situations to get you prepared when you get outside. Um, we're also um, using moral recognition therapy, thinking for a change. So we're really, try- we're really, really trying to uh, really beef up our evidence-based practices. But, you know, some really importantly what we've looked at in the last couple of years, which I think is really important, is who we hire. It's hiring the right people for those positions. Uh, we rewrote a lot of job descriptions and a lot of evaluations that really focuses on evidence-based practices and good problem-solving skills and good interpersonal relationships, treating people with respect, things like that. So we're also we've set the bar for the people we hire and how we evaluate them um, to do things that we know that are going to have better impacts on the people that we're serving. Sure. And Beth, I want to go back now to the recidivism uh, question. You had something that you kind of wanted to elaborate on. Yes. So one of the things I get asked a lot in my job is, why is the recidivism number going up? So we know in the past couple of years, it's ticking up. Um, We know that it's gone up. Uh, last year in 2017, it was 35.4%. In 18, it's 37.8%. That's a 2.4% increase. Um, but so when people ask, you know, what do you think the reason is? And it's not really a single, I can't give you a single answer. And I think it's important for people to really know this. That's usually a multitude of factors that can drive recidivism either way. Uh, one is how officers in the field are responding to violations. Are they uh, bringing them from the judge right away? Are they doing interventions before they take them to a revocation hearing? Those things do impact recidivism. Um, judiciary discretion. Judges have discretion if they want to, if they want to revoke someone, send someone to prison, things like that. Um, services and treatment available in our communities. You know, people in rural com- communities don't have the same access as those in more of the urban areas. Risk distribution. What I mean by that is that the composition of the population, we may have more higher risk individuals versus lower risk individuals. Also, uh, how you know when our clients are released, the selection process for that, those who go out through the board of parole, uh, law enforcement strategies. Uh, law changes can impact that. And of course, uh, one thing that we can have, we have some control over is over-supervising low-risk offenders. Um, like leaving those alone, referring them out to services, um, not over-supervising. So those are the, all the things, not maybe one of them drives it, but you see have a multitude of factors that really uh, could cause the recidivism to go up or down based on some of those factors. Well, I tell you, this has been phenomenal. For those of you who have just tuned in, you're tuned in to 98.3 The Vibe. And on 98.3 The Vibe, the image show is now in session, and we have Beth Skinner from the Department of Corrections. And I tell you, Beth, this has really been a pleasure to have you here in the studio on the image show. Uh, It was worth the wait, and I hope that everyone out there is tuning in and you're listening. I want to go back, first of all, and I just want to define recidivism. We've talked about it Mm -hmm. a lot, and I'm sure that there's people out there that are probably wondering, you know, we've heard this word come up. What Mm -hmm. is it? What is it? So the first thing is a challenge is just to say it, right? And you say it very well. Most people really kind of stumble over recidivism. So uh, that's that's half the battle there. Uh, So recidivism for us in Iowa, how we define it is that when you're released from prison, that's when your time clock starts. We follow them out for three years, whether they discharge, go on to parole, go on to a work release, 
And then if they come back within three years for a reincarceration, whether it be for a new conviction or uh, a revocation for a technical violation, that's when it counts. So you have to actually enter the institution yes, in order correct. for it to become recidivism. Correct. That is very important. So a person uh, that maybe gets put on probation and never actually goes to prison and completes his probation, he's not considered a statistic of recidivism. Correct. That is great. Mm -hmm. I tell you, Beth, uh, we've got to continue to keep people like you in tune with the image show because this information is knowledge is education, is wisdom, and this is what we need to continue this this growth of education and staying out of prison. Right, and and that's the goal is for us is creating you know safer communities, you know creating opportunities for safer communities, um, and that's that's what it's about. It's about helping people, giving them second chances. Uh, this is I mean, I'm in the best job of the world in the world because uh, I I see the opportunities to help people. And that's, that's what we're trying to do is help people, get people back in their communities in a safe way. Um, this is an, an, an absolute honor to, to be here on the show with you and have this opportunity. I know Department of Corrections is very excited about this as well. And we really appreciate your support. And we'll come back, I'll come back anytime if you want me or whoever. Uh, but truly a, a pleasure and a great opportunity. That's great. We're going to go to a quick break. We're going to come back with another guest. Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned in to The Image Show on 98.3 The Vibe. And we're back on The Image Show. For those of you who have just tuned in, we were speaking with Beth Skinner. And Beth is the Director of Risk Reduction for the Iowa DOC. And with us now is a man who was just released from federal prison about two weeks ago. Mr. Cortez Kellum Eel. Mr. Eel, it is a blessing to have you in the studios with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing actually great. No, I'm, I'm, I actually feel privileged to be on this radio show so soon after being out of prison. And how does it feel to have your freedom? You were locked up for, what, a decade? Hey, I was locked up a little over a decade in the federal prison prior to that, eight years in the state system. So to be out and about after all these years of my adult life of incarceration, it feels great. I feel like I can breathe. I'm, I feel like I'm moving in the right directions. Now, Cortez, I perceive you to be a very educated man, a very knowledgeable man. And so I want to just talk to you real briefly a little bit about uh, what you learned in prison, how it changed your life. Where were you at as opposed to where you're going now? At one point, when I was in the prison system, I had preconceived ideas about how life was supposed to be, what people were supposed to do for me versus what I was supposed to do for myself as a man. But my into the system, you know, most of us are still young, and we get our uh, we get our images and our ideas from watching TV, who we grew up around. So when I went into prison, I had that chance to get a break from that environment, which is toxic, which is we call the hood, which is you know what I'm saying the urban you know, the environment. So when I went to prison, I had a chance to read and meet brothers who had who took interest in me as well. Say, hey, look, young brother, you're not no, you're not stupid. You're smart. You have a chance still. And by them telling me these things, it gave me hope myself. So I started sitting down and listening and started reading. And prison for me was more like a, a journey of self-discovery. The more I learned about myself, the more that I became more confident about myself to see in society. When I was released from prison the first time, you know, I, made, I had made some positive growth development, but I still had some misconceived ideas about how society should compensate me instead of how I should compensate society. And 
when I went back to the federal prisons, I dealt with that second half of how I should compensate society rather society compensate me. What I should do and how I should handle issues that I feel that are not being addressed in my community where I come from with people like me who kind of have what I call cultural handicap because we're not on the same side as what you would call normal society. In my neighborhood, people, there's a lot of violence, a lot of drug activities, a lot of gang activities. So it was my, the question came to me is what I'm going to do about that the second time around. I could say society did this and society did that, but the question is not about what society done did. The question is about what I'm doing right now, what I'm going to do about that. Amen. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Am I coming across clear? And, and what is it that you're going to do? What are your plans? Now, let's let's go back. First of all, uh, you were incarcerated uh, when? When did you start this sentence, this number? I started my incarceration February 27th of 2009. That's when I got indicted by okay. the federal government. Okay, and from 2009 until we're in April 2019, what now, or, or where do you see yourself actually in society being productive, uh, fitting in, working uh, a job according to your passion? I mean, what are your goals and visions to overcome the old person that you used to be? That's a big question right there. <laughs> Me personally, I want to contribute not just to my community on a local scale, but to the community on a national scale. African-Americans, Africans, black people, Moors, whatever you want to call us, you know, we have a, a, a big problem nationally. And I want to contribute to developing a national community that actually addresses the things like call, we call mass incarceration. There's only one way to address mass incarceration. Most people become incarcerated because they lack opportunities in their community to do better. So, if you want to change anything in the community, you got to change the opportunities available. The first thing you hear when you go in prison is, they tell you, you had choices in life and you made choices to be in prison. I have my, have my opinions on that, but I tell people all the time, choices mean you come with options. Choices always has options. You got one thing in this hand, you got one thing in this, and you pick. A lot of us from our neighborhoods, we didn't have nothing to pick. All we had was what we were given. So now, it's about creating that other option. Now it's about putting something in the other hand and then giving a person a real choice. So now if they do decide to deviate and go the other way, then you can say that they chose that path. Because they had a choice. They had a choice. They had a, they had, had a, the options. We didn't have certain options. That when our, My cousins were gang members. My brother was gang members. I'm coming up underneath them. Everybody's selling drugs. Everybody's using drugs. Everybody carrying guns. These things were not... These things I was introduced to at a very young age. So by the time I got to a teenage, by teenager and puberty, you, these are common things. These are common now. These are common way of life. So do I really got a choice in the matter? Because they're telling me that this is how I got because now I'm inheriting the, that generation's culture. Now the thing is, okay, what are we going to do to take away that? What are we going to offer? So the first thing we always got to offer is employment to our youth. There's no such thing as a society that's successful without employment for their youth. There's always got to be employment for the youth because they got to act, because that's how they're going to provide for their family. So how do, one of my biggest qualms with the prison system and the social working system is that they push us off into getting jobs versus teaching us how to start businesses. There's a known fact that in our society that there's no such thing as full employment. 
It's always going to be an unemployment statistic there. Unemployment what? Uh, unemployment statistic. Okay, statistic. It's statistic. Yeah, okay. you got, got it. that okay. word right there. But it. yeah, it's always going to be an unemployment statistic. It's always going to be a certain level of unemployment. Okay. There's only one way to solve that by creating more jobs. You, you can't create more jobs by pe- teaching people to be better employees. You got to teach people the skills and the knowledge to actually start businesses that can hire people that's unemployed. That's right. Man, I like what you're saying. I'll tell you, Cortez, it's nice to have you in here saying this stuff because this is the kind of things that people need to hear. These are the kind of words that people need to hear literally because there's so many people in the community that have come from where you've come from. Unfortunately for me, I had a choice. I chose to take the wrong path because I wanted to, but I saw the other side. So that was my stupidity. And that's why I knew deep down in my heart that I had no choice but to change when I was in prison because I was not the person that I was walking around portraying to be the first eight months, eight, nine months that I was actually in prison. And that disguise eventually wore off. And once I discovered self-identity, it took a huge burden off my back. Then I was able to go around and act and be the person that I was naturally. And this this is the thing that led to the image program is we wanted people to discover who they really are versus trying to act like somebody else. And so I appreciate your words. We're about out of time, but man, I wish we could continue to talk because this is just very much needed for our community. And so I'm going to invite you back. Uh, We had Beth Skinner on here today. Uh, She had some good things to tell us about uh, the DOC and the the numbers and the statistics. And so I think we were able to hear both views of things. So we're going to close this session right now. We're going to wish everyone out there a beautiful week. Uh, We ask and pray that you continue to keep tuning in to The Image Show every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And for those of you who have listened uh, throughout the day, uh, we hope that uh, we gave you something to hold on to. So uh, this is Cortez, uh, Beth Skinner, Robert Pate saying so long from The Image Show. Have a beautiful week, ladies and gentlemen.